My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Slow Departure. The Sound Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious Existence. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. So what did we read this week? On this week's episode, The Encounter. Which one is this? It's the first Tobias book. It's the first Tobias book. Tobias is still a hawk, as it turns out. That's true. It seems like he's going to be a hawk for a while. Yeah. This is uh, the Animorphs hatch a crazy scheme to do something awesome, and it goes terribly. (laughs) It's the only book in which that happens. (laughs) Pretty much every Animorphs book, at least so far. So, Gray, do you want to give a longer summary of the book? Okay, so this is uh, Tobias is still caught in the hawk morph. The caper at the beginning is Tobias and Rachel releasing this red-tailed hawk that had been captured. While flying in the mountains, Tobias finds this hidden spaceship that's sucking water and air out of a lake in the mountains to feed the Yerk ship in orbit. So the Animorphs morph into wolves to explore, and they meet another wolf pack. and then after that, Tobias has an identity crisis because he's trapped in this hawk body. He's starting to fall in love with the hawk that he rescued. He's struggling with who he is. He doesn't know what to eat. It's very sad. Um, so he lives as a hawk for a few days before he kind of comes back to them. The animals decide to destroy this ship that's gathering the water and the air. So they turn into fish to get sucked up into the ship, and they almost get trapped. Instead, they crash the ship and live to fight another day. And there also are some mentions of suicide in this one, so just a heads up in case that's a problem for anyone. Once again, these books do not pull punches with the stakes that they're facing. Tobias in particular, but all of them. They're like ready to give up their lives in this. Yes! Yes. Ted was saying that he can't believe this stuff happens like as soon as the third book, but it happens in like, I mean, every book so far. Yeah, there are all these moments in this that I remember, they just stick out as, oh, this is like one of these things that I really remember about the Animorphs books. Mm. But there were like three or four of them in here, like Tobias flying through the mall, then when mm. the ship blows up at the end, all these things. Them almost getting stuck in Wolf Morph is one that I remember really clearly. Yeah, yeah, that's another one. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't remember how many times that happens, but this is the one that I think of when... I remember another really yeah. iconic one that's like even a little more intense than this, but this is one of the... The major ones. It's pretty intense. Yeah. And again, it's, first of all, this is the first book where the morphing itself creeped me out. Really? Okay, so which part? Because I always write down all the creepy morph stuff. I hate it every yeah. time. I, not, wow, it really, really doesn't bother me. This one was the one where, and it's because bones were breaking. And were they? As we have discussed, I don't like that. It's when Cassie becomes the wolf for the first time, I think. And she says, so it's her nose bulges out, her ears slid up on the side of their head till they almost touched on the top. And then, oh, uh, here we go. All over her body, the fur replaced the bright pinks and greens of her leotard. A tail suddenly shot out from behind. I could hear the grinding of her bones as they rearranged. Yeah, because yeah, you can hear it. You can't feel it, right? They doesn't. It's not painful for the morphers, but it's gross for everybody yes, else. and then there was a sickening crunch as her knees changed direction. Her legs shrank and thinned and grew fur, and then she was now a wolf. Ew. Pretty I wonder gross. if like I was primed by having read these when I was younger to just be like, yeah, that's cool. Nope. Doesn't faze me at all. And then the fish later. The fish also was super also gross. icky. The fish was gross, but like, I don't know. It. This is a constant theme of, for some reason, it doesn't bother me. It bothers you, though, Ted, even though you read these when you were younger. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I like it. All the descriptions are amazing to read. My favorite in this book is actually, it's not one of the gross ones, but at the beginning, when Rachel is getting out of her elephant morph, Tobias <laughs> has some amazing has, like, the descriptors. One, the right, well, she ends up with just a trunk, but mm-hmm. I think the phrase is the tusks schlooped <laughs> back into her face, oh, which was that. amazing. Though. Yes, Though, slooped. I also wrote down, Tobias says that Rachel's ears are perfectly formed <laughs> and that she has long, cultish legs, which cult-ish. is which is definitely not a word that a 90s teen boy yeah, hawk would so use. Actually, I was picking up on the authors seem to want to tell us what the characters look like, but they have to do it through the point of view of 
the main character. And I feel like they didn't do a great job of that with like trying to get around that. They're like, Marco, like the girls probably think he's good looking because of these things because they don't want Tobias saying that Marco's good looking because they don't imply that Tobias likes Marco that way. Jake's a big guy, you know. <laughs> it's just how I describe him. Yeah. <laughs> Not football player big, but solid. You know, they're all big compared to Tobias right now. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting, and I also had a question about it, which was, had the cover artists read the books at all? No. Probably not. The kids on the covers do not look anything like the way they are described. And I would like to refer you back to episode one, wherein we talked about how Jake was, like, scrawny and sullen on the cover. Cr- he was cover. scrawny. He was scrawny. Like, wasn't it, like, just his head anyway? Yeah, but he was, he was like, a little was grumpy boy. Was scrawny head? tiny. We didn't think he was going to make grumpy. the basketball team based on his face. But it turns out he's... <laughs> Big and and I, football player. I feel thought, like he you know, looked thought. more like serious than sullen. He also might have had a growth Stand spurt by. in the last three weeks. <laughs> they are thirteen after all. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, or Tobias's perspective could just be skewed by him being bird sized now. Right. Okay, that's a probably good point. not. I don't think it's true, but <laughs> fair enough. It is interesting, and it's also interesting, I think, in this book. One of the things I noticed is the way that the relationships in the group are continuing to evolve, and we're getting more and more insight into how they interact with one another now as Animorphs, as well as how they always have. So there's still those flashes of, you know, Jake and Rachel are really close. You can tell that they're cousins, but you're getting more of the romantic relationships as well. Mm-hmm. Cassie mm-hmm. hugging Jake when he morphs fully from wolf into human. She's so excited and that she has to hug the other two to make it not weird. <laughs> to cover right. it up. Yeah. So sweet. And Rachel and Tobias, whom I continue to ship even though he's a bird. Yeah, I, I love that it's not just that we get signs that they seem to feel a connection, but we get some of the substance of that connection. We start mm-hmm. to see why they have this bond. Like, she has this inner strength that he describes that is really appealing to him, especially when everything is so uncertain right now for him. Yeah, that's a good point. And I love, there's a lot more of an implied history to this relationship that comes Mm -hmm. up in this book, too. Not only does Rachel have a picture of Tobias somehow, but (laughs) their parting words to each other before Rachel thinks she's going to die is, you know, he's like, there's something I didn't, I needed to tell you. And she's like, no, don't worry, I knew. And then he goes off. Those lines. Except do we think that they knew each other really before they became animals? I know. I think it's just like a crush kind of thing. Like yeah. it's probably, okay. I just imagine that they maybe had some classes together or Yeah, they probably were familiar each with each other he, before. He says that she's one of his best friends, right? And he really only has the two friends. Well, so. I think he didn't have friends before mm-hmm. this. I did like the last moment between the two of them. Rachel, I never told you. You didn't have to, Tobias, she said. I knew. Goodbye. Yikes! Right. So, you speaking of the romance in this book, you were right about what this book was going to be about. Do you remember yeah. your guess about the encounter? I do not. You said it was going to be, he's going to meet a lady hawk. And Ted and I were like, what an interesting guess. Oh my god, how did she know? I'm so smart, you guys. You're so smart. Did you buy into this love triangle at all? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> because it was clearly nuts. Having said that, I was heartbroken when the hawk died at the end. Yeah. I was very upset that, yeah. that yeah. she died. And it was such a wonderful human moment for all of them. And I did like how they tied that back into Tobias's growth through this book. Oh, I where, loved that. Yeah, I mean, he's so concerned about how drawn he is to this lady hawk. Mm-hmm. And then when she dies, it's that way of knowing that he is human. That yeah. even though he was drawn to her, the fact that he can grieve her means he's a human. Mm-hmm. And right. that's such a wonderful way to think about the difference between being a human and, and being an animal. But it broke my heart. It's a great illustration of how he's finding this space where he's both human and a hawk because he's taking this grief as a sign that he's human because he points out, if she had been my mate, I would have missed her, been disturbed, but sadness, that's, that's a human emotion. Right. And But he doesn't want to go find her body and bury it because she's a hawk, and that's a part of himself that he's embracing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the whole arc of using his relationship with the bird to kind of, like, reveal what his life is like and take him through all of the ups and downs mm-hmm. worked really well. Because it starts out, he's kind of like, you know, you don't get a sense of how bad it is for him at the beginning because he's, he's focusing on the positives. He's kind yeah. of like, I'm making it work. You know, my life was never so good anyway. Being a bird is pretty awesome. I can fly blah, 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 no responsibilities. And then his instincts towards the female hawk are kind of like the first thing where he's like, oh God, oh God, I can't, I can't actually think about this. I'm not dealing with it. And then you get to see he's living in this attic. It's like 
really kind of sad. He doesn't fit in. He can't tell Jake that he can't eat the food that Jake is bringing for him. And then it keeps kind of... It's so obviously untenable, like the way he's living, the way he's like trying to deny the hawk instincts to hunt. Right. And then it brings it back around again. He's full human, he's full hawk, and then he's he's a mix of both, right? Yeah. it delivers on that really well. It does, although they still have not addressed the logistics. Which logistics? So he's living in Jake's attic, but it's not very comfortable for him because he has a soft blanket and he wants twigs. But also, Jake definitely knows he's not eating the broccoli. Jake is not an idiot. When he goes to put the next food down, the broccoli hasn't been eaten. Maybe Tobias puts it somewhere. Maybe. <laughs> it seems unlikely. I Tom's mean, cleaning up like, the attic. He's carrying <laughs> it's like, what like... is all this broccoli doing in the cupboard? you <laughs> <laughs> He's carrying it out in his talons, one piece of broccoli at a time, like dumping it in the woods or something. That is a logistic that has never worked out. And the food in general, even as he's eating the hamburger that is left for him, it's not what his body needs, his hawk body needs. I mean, my impressions are influenced by what I see of Tobias later, Mm -hmm. but you seem to have come away with the impression that he is going to keep living in Jake's attic and eating this food that Jake leaves, whereas it seemed... Like, he had come around to, I have this territory in this meadow, and I'm willing to hunt. And did you not see that as something that was going to last? I did not. I did not see that as the way that it was going to last, and I don't know why I had that impression. I guess they don't really specify. But there is that conversation, I think, with Rachel about, oh, yeah, it's yeah, after is... he reemerges from, mm-hmm. like, being buried in the hawk's mind. And he talks about how he saw the Horfajir chasing the human and just saw it as prey the way he chases rats and mice. And they have this conversation about how killing when it's your natural way to live is okay and the way the Yerks kill for dominance and control is not okay. Mm-hmm. And that, that seemed to be him coming to terms with his hunting. Yeah, and he does say at the end, I am a human, but I'm also a hawk. I'm a predator who kills for food. Mm, Yeah. So it does seem like maybe he has come to terms with eating prey species, but it did seem that that was still going to be something that is difficult for him. Yeah, and, and, and they don't, that. right, the, the logistics aren't addressed Yeah, not very directly, yeah. right. It's more kind of like a thematic closure. I was curious what you thought about the killing to control and dominate versus killing to eat Grey, because I feel like this is the first Animorphs moral quandary thing where they sit back and think about it for a little bit. And the thing that I love about it is that like Rachel pauses for a moment and then she's like, this is the answer. And she <laughs> says it confidently. And then Tobias is like, I wasn't totally convinced, but I like listening to Rachel. Sure. And it's such a great... It's such a great undercutting of like yeah this is a really hard thing and there's not like a moral here it's just like some kids trying to figure out where to draw the boundary yeah and it was also very interesting that rachel was still uncomfortable with him killing to eat yeah just instinctively Even, even at that moment when she's comforting him and and trying to say eating is natural for a hawk you're doing just what you meant to be doing but she seems just so uncomfortable with it. And I actually wondered a little bit how much of that was influenced by her time as a shrew. Oh, that she's yeah. remembering being that prey and how much that instinct is continuing to be reflected in their relationship of her remembering him as this huge predator kind of sweeping down. There's no evidence of that, but I wondered. Mm-hmm. I was thinking when you said it was from her experience as the shrew, I was thinking it's that nightmare she had where she was the shrew and wanted to eat the maggots. Mm. Um, that really disturbed her, and so yeah. she might be actually putting that on, like that drive to eat something that now, as a human, she thinks is disgusting, she's projecting that onto Tobias. That's a really good point, too. Yeah. And it's a good indication of how compassionate they are as animorphs. And this is an incredibly compassionate group of people, right? They're not turning into elephants for kicks. <laughs> Although they do crunch convertibles, which I have to say, this time reading, I was like, that's an incredible amount of property damage. <laughs> I also have I, a... Yeah, I agree with Marco about that first thing. <laughs> totally insane. What like, were they what, thinking? What were they thinking? <laughs> I made a note that is, she better stop doing this elephant morph. It's not exactly subtle. (laughs) You couldn't have come up with any better solution than turning into an elephant. Okay, well, they're 13 and make bad decisions. But that clearly was an opening scene to show us their powers without getting into the whole yurt conflict. Right. Sure. But I I think Rachel coming to grips with Tobias as a hawk, she's a good example. Like you said, they're all kind of incredibly compassionate, but they also haven't dealt with it, Mm. right? There's a lot of references. Tobias is kind of like, he knows how bad it is for him, but nobody else 
is clued into it like and they they feel really uncomfortable he makes the joke about like oh you know chase it out i'm hungry and like yeah. none, none of them are ready to laugh about it marco yet laughs. right well so that's one of marco's distinguishing characteristics right is that he's more of like a, he's more of a cynic or he sees how like it really works right like right. he's aware that tobias's situation is objectively really really bad mm-hmm. and he he's like already there in a way that it's it's a good point. Although Marco's also the one who makes the very insensitive joke mm-hmm. about I don't remember what it was something about eating. I think it was another eating joke, but he said it, and everyone else just sort of turns to him. This like Marco, shut up, man. And I think that's another. I mean, I just remember being thirteen. I mean, I still do this and making the joke because you think it's going to break the tension, and no, it makes it worse yeah. sometimes. What was that? I don't remember if this happens twice, but at least at one point, Tobias was like, "I'm glad Marco is still teasing me. Yeah. Like, yes. it's nice that he can be part of the group and not like he's like a special someone untouchable. He right, might break. Right. Kind of I do think it was person. that moment. Yeah, I think Marco has this kind of joking strategy of dealing with things, and he's he's still working the kinks out of it. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work so well. He's 13. I'll get it. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about with this is the idea of a kind of elucidation moment. We talked about this last time with Rachel that learning about Melissa and her relationship with her parents was the thing that made Rachel go from being not totally all in on fighting the Yerks to being all in. She is ready to go. She's going to fight them no matter what. And at the beginning of the book, I thought Tobias had really had his moment already. Yeah, because he already was all in. It, it seemed like that. And yet, one of the things this book does really well is give him a chance to have that moment again. Mm. To have a sense of, I think it's it's sort of when he sees the human being chased by the Horvagier and throughout that kind of latter half of the book where he's realizing that this is a real conflict, that even though he's struggling with his own issues, he wants to be able to fight them. Mm -hmm. Even if he's not able to do it in the way that his friends can, he still wants to be in on this fight. And I thought that was a really interesting arc for him to have, given that he's the one who is committed. He has to be. He's a hawk and not a kid anymore. Right. Um, but this might be letting us see that a lot of them have these moments in the first few books where like, okay, this is the moment where I've decided I'm in this fight. But that's not necessarily a one and done experience mm-hmm. because this is an incredibly difficult fight. They're fighting a war secretly while living their ordinary lives. They aren't going to be like, yes, I'm in. I will never question this or have any difficulty being committed to this fight again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice that they actually have that because I think it's so much more realistic. If you had a bunch of 13-year-olds trying to fight a war against aliens, they would definitely have those moments of doubt. Yeah, so I, I just liked that Tobias did have was still able to have a bit of an arc, in particular in his acceptance of himself as a hawk. Mm-hmm. and his acceptance of this fight and, and what he needed to do with it. One thing I really liked about this book is that Tobias's struggle between his hawk and human side and his struggle to reconcile those, he has a lot of breakthrough moments, but there's not like one thing that fixes him. It's not oversimplified. Mm-hmm. It's not the kind of like, aha, my philosophical breakthrough, emotional breakthrough, the way you'd see in like a 20-minute animated after-school special. Like There are so many moments, and I wrote down a lot of them, where he tries to figure out what it is, what it means to be human, and what it means for him to stay human. There's the thing where Rachel tells him, like, a person isn't his body, a person isn't what's on the outside. Mm-hmm. And she also offers him the, as long as you have me and the others, you aren't lost. Like, this idea of community is what keeps you being who you are. And he has his elucidation moment of, like, maybe if I can keep some of these other people free, maybe I can never be free of this body, but if I can help some of these people who are enslaved by the Yerks, maybe that is what will help me stay human. Mm -hmm. And then he has the moment where he realizes his grief is what shows him he's human. It's just these many layers that really add up to this Mm -hmm. nice picture. And I think Applegate does a great job at foreshadowing that as well with the initial fight scene where he's freeing the hawk. He's so upset that this hawk is caged and not mm-hmm. free. Mm. And then you get the moment halfway through where he talks about there are human beings all over trapped in bodies controlled by yerks, trapped, unable to escape. Rachel, I know how they feel. Maybe I can't escape. Maybe I am trapped forever. But if we can free some of those others, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's what I need to do to stay human. And then mm-hmm. at the end, he has that incredibly poignant and not a 13-year-old voice where he talks about, okay, you know now why I can't tell you my last name or where I live. But someday you may look up in the sky and see the silhouette of a large bird of prey, 
some large bird with a rending beak and sharp tearing talons, some bird with vast wings outstretched to ride the thermals. Be happy for me and for all who fly free. Oh, that yeah. last line. Yeah. That's it's one that's incredible. really stuck with me. Yeah. Like I, that's like a line that I was trying to remember when I started this book. I was like, is that the line at the end of this book? And I was like, I think it is. And it's just like one that's really stayed in my mind. Mm-hmm. And like I've heard over the years. Yeah. And one thing that's so great about this book is it really is much more about Tobias and him grappling with what's going on mm-hmm. while still managing to check those sort of like boxes of an anamorphs caper. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's also that the plot elements are just really well tied to his character development the plot does a good job of supporting the, or the action plot does a good job of supporting the emotional plot. Right. Mm. I do want to talk about the fight scene at the end, though. Uh-huh. A couple things. Okay. Uh, one, Visser 3 is definitely Darth Vader. It's not even subtle at this point, right? You get the ships coming in, and then the cloaked ship appears. And, and it makes you feel dread. Yeah. You can hear the Darth Vader theme. It's a, <laughs> a black within black blade ship. At one point, there is a, okay, it wasn't a Death Star, but it was something similarly. It feels like a in. moon above. Yeah, yeah, there's a dark moon somewhere where, okay, that's the Death Star. I mean, he's definitely Darth Vader coming in to, yeah. like, again, he's checking on the progress right. of what's going on. But I also thought it was really interesting that this final battle, because it's from Tobias's perspective, you see the wing ships, but you don't see what's happening with the four of them trapped underwater and trying to get out. I mean, it's not where I would have expected the action to be mm-hmm. in this scene. I would have expected, okay, there are four people and they're trapped underwater and they're morphing and they can't get the thing open and they realize they're going to die and they say, okay, we'll bring the ship down. At least there'll be some cause for our death. Like, you've got to bring the ship down. And instead it's from Tobias's perspective. It's right. panicking because they're stuck in there. First of all, their situation, my worst nightmare. Mm. I would never <laughs> yeah. morph into anything underwater for fear of that exact thing happening. It was nope. a poorly thought out plan. It was yeah. not a good plan. Very bad plan. But also you get this very cool TIE fighter fight scene where the ships are zipping around and there's Dracon blades or whatever the heck they're called and lasers. I said Dracon, I don't know. I also said Dracon. Dracon okay. beams. Dracon beams, my apologies. Dracon beams flying around and and then the the ship crashes it's so good it's so unrealistic but it's so good what the hell kind of dracon beam can a hawk operate with his talons that's just silly well to be fair is there something unrealistic no hold on hold on the taxons can operate it with lobster claws so that's a really good point so good point can't be that hard to use i had not thought of that but take it a step further what happens to the dracon beam later? Do they have very low charge? Why can't the anamorphs collect them? They seem very easy to steal. And they can disintegrate entire deer in one shot, right? Like, it seems like this is maybe something that... Yeah, it cut right through some control panels and stuff. They should be, you know... should grab those. Saving for later. (laughs) Although, I feel like the way that they fight this war, like, the strengths that they draw on to fight this war are not very compatible with using the dracon beams. Mm -hmm. If they're turning into animals to, like, sneak into places... Having a ray gun on you is maybe not going to be. There are probably yeah. a few instances in which you'd really want it, but other times when it would really. But it was away. also interesting that after all of the stuff that Tobias is feeling about, you know, having to kill prey animals to survive, it really takes an emotional toll on him. But the animorphs definitely were. If they if they didn't kill people, they were responsible for several deaths at the York Pool in the first book. Mm-hmm. And Tobias straight up is like happy to pull the trigger on that taxon at the end and doesn't yeah. question it for a second. And like, sure, the, the, the taxons, taxons are, are really bad. Yeah. You know, hungry, evil centipede monsters. But I thought it was interesting that he didn't even think about it. Well, one of the things that Rachel said, she tries to portray it as this black and white, like open and shut case of the way the Yorks kill is bad, the way that you kill as a bird is good and natural and normal and and right and she doesn't really address the way that they kill fighting the war in this and then i like that tobias is like not entirely convinced because right. i think that that doesn't really quite hold water and the book acknowledges that and it raises this really difficult question and sort of provides an answer but leaves this space for like oh maybe this answer isn't as nuanced as it needs to be because yeah the way the years kill maybe isn't natural but there was something in there killing because it's the only way you can eat because if that's the way nature designed you that's one thing Killing because you want power or control is evil. I was like, 
did nature not design the Yerks to be like, yeah. controlling people? Like, <clears throat> they are slugs who crawl into people's ears. Like, that's not a technology. That's the way nature designed them. I'm like, this is a... Rachel's trying to make this, like, a statement that will make everything okay, and it doesn't really hold right. up. But I think it's also such a great character moment for Rachel, yeah. because it's such a recognizably Rachel thing to do, where it's like, her friendship with Tobias comes first. So she is going to find a way to make it okay. She's going to mm-hmm. say something validating. And she she's sort like, of needs these absolutes. And she, I think we saw a little bit in her book the way she needs to be strong. And there's also some fear and some weakness in her that she cannot deal with, mm-hmm. that she's right. not okay with. Others that we've seen, others of them, are more comfortable are more comfortable sort of living in the nuanced place. Maybe they aren't comfortable there, but they can do it. And she really aims for this absolute. Right. Yeah, Tobias is much more vulnerable than mm-hmm. Rachel is. And he's much more comfortable with that vulnerability, which I think is a lovely sort of anti-toxic masculinity thing. Ooh, true. In his, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because he, he really is, he the way that he deals with his situation is very inwardly focused, and he's very concerned about his impact on the world and, and how he's going to deal with that. But he's also incredibly concerned about them mm-hmm. and how each of them are dealing with things and how they're dealing with him. And he's almost more concerned about their feelings than he is about his own situation in some places. Right. Like when he talks about eating the mouse or whatever it is the first time, his concern is not, I ate this thing and it was gross. Like Jake's is when he eats the spider. It's, I ate these things and my friends are disgusted by it and by me. Mm -hmm. And he's uncomfortable with that, but he admits it and he owns it in a way that Rachel wouldn't be able to do. He admits it to himself, right? Mm -hmm. But I picked up on that he's able to talk to Rachel about it. Mm -hmm. They have a special connection. When he is talking to the other boys in the group about it, there's a lot of toxic masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not able to ask him about his feelings and he's not willing to talk about it openly. Mm -hmm. So like Jake gives him an intense look to check in with him and he's like, (laughs) no, bro, I'm fine. Like, don't worry. (laughs) And there's like, there's like, oh yeah, just checking in. You know, they're like, they they can't cross that line. It's Mm -hmm. really firmly drawn. That's a good point. Speaking of gender stuff, I really notice the moment when Marco's like, why do I have to morph the girl wolf? I know. There's so much unexplored there. Like There really is. I don't think I really thought about it. I think I probably, when I was reading it the first time, was like, yeah, I wouldn't want to be a girl wolf, <laughs> yep. and then moved on. Yep. Yeah, this idea that the gender of the animal you're turning into needs to match your gender, like the fact that it was Jake and Marco who flipped to be the male wolf, and yeah. I think it would have made a lot more sense for Cassie to be the male wolf if she's the best morpher, right? No one one even suggests that. She could have controlled the the morph better. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. That whole scene is very odd. I think in part because they are dealing with the fact that they're a pack, and Jake is the alpha in the pack, and that that is weird in some ways because some other people have stronger personalities and Jake is a natural leader, but what exactly does that mean? I know. I was disappointed that Tobias said that. My theory for about the first book, that Tobias is just kind of like <laughs> subtly manipulating him. For whatever reason, Tobias mm-hmm. just likes him, thinks he's a good leader. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think Tobias is subtly manipulating him. I don't think Tobias is that much of like a sneaky mastermind. Like, I liked the thing where, in that scene where... Oh, Jake had determined to do something, but he wanted to hear everyone else's opinions first. Yeah, and so Jake. Yeah, but Tobias is, is like describing him like this, and I'm like, how much has he seen of Jake's leadership style so far? Does he really know this? Is he sort of projecting this onto him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get he must be projecting because yeah. he's kind of the one who creates the idea in the first book. But it's already really well established, though, that they all follow Jake yeah. and that he kind of. A lot of, of the roles are really well right. established in this. He makes the decisions. Cassie's the one who uses her morphing talent. Mm-hmm. Like Marco's the one who's like, wait, this is weird. Let's check in with reality. And he's also the one who's really good at logistics. Yeah, this was like, yeah. there's that logistics scene. It's so Marco from top to finish because yeah. it starts out with, he does the classic, like, I'm going to raise my hands to make a joke. He's like, uh, <laughs> excuse me, this is terrible. Um, and then he's I like, immediately he's like, oh, if we make it decloak, it's over, right? So he's he's looking for a way out so he doesn't have to fight anymore, mm, but he has a really mm-hmm. good idea that nobody else would have thought of. And then, I, I forget exactly what Tobias suggests, but Tobias has some suggestion. Tobias is like, let's do it tomorrow morning. And everyone's like, yes, we're in, we're in. And Marco says no. And they're like, what, really? He's like, no, because we have to go to school. Mm-hmm. And Chapman will notice if we're not there. And they're like, oh, that's such a good point. Right. But there was something else where Marco suggested something. Tobias corrected him. 
And Marco was like, he immediately changed his mind because Tobias was right. He's very annoying when he has kind of an axe to grind, but he mm-hmm. was like quick to defer to someone else's better suggestion. Mm-hmm. And so all of that, I was like, his character is really well established here. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated about this book was the, the moments of humor. All of the books so far have had these really funny moments. And often it's somebody breaking the tension, Marco mm-hmm. does. But there were some pretty hilarious moments in this book. I really appreciated when Marco pointed out, does anyone else ever stop to realize that some of the things we talk about doing are totally insane, all caps insane? And then Rachel replies, uh, what, turning into fish so we can be carried by a hawk and let ourselves be sucked up in the pipe of an alien spaceship so we can then turn into tigers and gorillas and whatever and overpower (laughs) the creepy aliens? Is that what you mean by insane? That's it exactly. Yes, okay. It's great. (laughs) I really liked when he's like, a ship the size of Delaware, and then halfway down the page he's like, a ship the size of Idaho, and Cassie's like, a minute ago it was only the size of Delaware. (laughs) Not the important part here. Um, I also really appreciated when they were wolves. Jake having to stop to pee all the time. <laughs> so funny. And the, the whole howling thing, yes. right? Like, they give, Cassie has some really reasonable line, and Tobias is like, yeah, it would have been pretty reasonable, except that she was staring up at this guy and yodeling like a you know, lunatic. Like idiot, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's very funny. It was wonderful. It was, and it was a good, again, because so much of this book is dealing with these really weighty topics. Yeah. It was good to have these moments of stepping back and like, this is crazy. We know. Everything mm-hmm. about this is nuts, but we've got to do it anyway, so all right, let's go. And I, I just, I really appreciated the way that this book used those moments of humor to cut between the the moments of pathos. It's a really well-handled tone. Mm. I feel like this book in general is just really impressive, like more so than I'd remembered. Book two is, is good, like Rachel's dealing with some weighty stuff, but it's mostly Melissa's weighty stuff, mm-hmm. and she feels it vicariously, she has strong feelings about it, but Tobias is dealing with stuff that's way huger than Mm -hmm. Rachel's my best friend is unhappy problem. And the book just handles it, like balances it really well. We Mm -hmm. talked about pacing for some of the earlier ones. I think the way this paces itself is really nice. Like it has him retreat into the hawk mind and it doesn't spend a lot of time dwelling on that, but enough that you really feel it. And then the thing at the end where it's the action sequence where they're in horrible danger and all you really get is Rachel telling Tobias about it a little, like you were saying, Gray, mm-hmm. that you don't really get the perspective from inside that situation, and yet it doesn't feel like forced or tacked on. Or, mm-hmm. yeah, they just handle it really well. They sell it really well. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is what Ted was saying that this is Tobias being very internal and mm-hmm. Rachel being more driven by extremes or, or sort of decisions that she needs to see things kind of in black and white as long as a decision has been made she's kind of more comfortable with that Mm. and Tobias does have much more nuanced view of of who he is and what they're doing and I think that's that is handled particularly well Mm -hmm. there's an article that we found recently that's called reading in stealth or my life in animorphs by Cassius Adair and it's about how as a trans kid he the closeted trans kid at the time, he really strongly identified with Tobias and his struggle to live in this body that was not his own. And I mean, I'm by no means an expert on this because I am not trans. And the reasons that I loved these books were not the same, but I could really see, like it was not something that had ever occurred to me before reading this article. And I could really see reading this book, like, yeah, this struggle to be who you are, even though your body doesn't match it. And the idea that, like, maybe someday you'll be able to, like, get out of this, like, cage of this wrong body that you're in, but maybe not. Maybe you just have to learn how to live with this. Like, it was really, I could really see how this would speak to people in that situation. Yeah, and you mentioned this before, but the a person isn't his body line. Yeah. After reading the article, that jumped jumped out to me as being uh, really resonant. That's particularly interesting because Tobias is the one who's trapped in some ways, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. others have the chance to change their bodies, yeah, and he doesn't. And I can see that being incredibly resonant for someone who feels they also can't change who they are, especially as a young person yeah, doesn't maybe see the options. And I imagine, especially as a young person, if the author was reading this in the 90s, there were even fewer options. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be really curious to know whether this was something that the authors were aware of at all, or if it's just a blind spot that happens to be accidentally resonant. 
I might be making this up, but I believe that I saw on Twitter that K.A. Applegate has a trans child. Really? Although, I don't think she would have known that because her right. first child yeah, was born their, while they, they were writing the series. Kids. Right, but I... Wow, that would be really interesting. And I, the reason I suspect that it's a blind spot is because they bring up the gender stuff with Marco turning into the girl wolf, but it's not really explored or like thought about. They don't pay attention to yeah. it or really talk about it in, in any way. Okay. Oh, go ahead. No, no. I think it's not something that I picked up on as like a 10-year-old kid reading these no. books. I didn't really think about the implications of it. I don't know what I, you know, would have made of it coming to it later. But I imagine that hope is really important. The idea that for Tobias that the Andalites might come back and be able to change him. Mm-hmm. And for a child reading this and feeling that same sense of trapped that maybe as an adult something mm-hmm. could be different. It's really meaningful. I did, I'm not going to be able to cite this, but there was something I read recently that was about how sometimes with groups that are underrepresented in media, like queer kids or something, they often, sometimes even when there starts to be explicit representation, like shows that have like a gay character and stuff, they sometimes are still more drawn to like the more classic like golden girls or like things that is sort of a hidden or like thematic, coded, yeah, representation because if there's one gay character, you might not identify with him. And like if it's sort of in the themes of the show, you might see your feelings mirrored in those themes, even though there's no specific person. So even though there's no specifically trans character in Animorphs, this strong theme of secrecy, of being trapped, of like this horrible, urgent thing that you can't tell adults about, that if adults knew, you might be in horrible danger. Like this would all resonate, not just with trans kids, but with all sorts of... Yeah, and also something that people who aren't going through it can understand, Mm -hmm. right? Even though he he has friends who can talk to it about. Yeah. They don't, they want to support him, but they don't know how. They don't really get it, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think there's something that ties that into one of the things we talked about earlier, which is the idea of diversity in children's literature, that Mm -hmm. especially, as you were saying, the, the sort of initial forays into more diverse writing and more diverse television and movies, one of the things that ends up happening is a little bit of tokenism Mm. where, see, we have a black character yeah, and we have a gay character and, you know, good job us. We put these characters in and okay, yes, but that means, as you were saying, you only get that one character and if that character doesn't reflect who you are, then they're not the person that you most identify with, right? It's going to be a different character in the cast who has a life that is closer to your own experiences apart from this one mm-hmm. tokenistic identity, right? right? And I think that's another way that this is just a really strong way to, to bring that in. I, I love that. Yeah, I should clarify. I don't mean that actual explicit representation isn't important, but especially, like you were saying, when it's very early representation, mm-hmm. when it's only one person, it's, yeah, maybe harder to yeah. identify. Absolutely, 100% mm-hmm. agree. I would like to bring up Tobias's suicide attempt. Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, this is one of those incredibly weighty issues that they deal with in these books, but it was an awful scene. I found it so hard to read. And in part because of the way it was written, it happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. a short chapter, and so much happens in Tobias's head, and so much of it is a scream of pain. Yeah, and and a physical scream, of, physical scream in that he is he is just seeking so desperately a way out that he keeps hoping he's gonna crash into something and die. I mean, right. over yeah. and over and over right. again until the very last moment, and it just was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that Marco was the one who saved him, I thought was really interesting. But Rachel's presence to catch him when he was falling yeah. was really incredibly moving. That whole scene just was awful to read, and I was wondering how you guys remember it from when you read it the first time. I actually, like, I remember the urgency and desperation of the scene. I remember Rachel catching him. I remember Marco saving him. I don't think I quite interpreted it as a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the language is never quite 
yeah. I want to die, right? He's yeah. like, I want it to stop. I want it to be over. It went over my head yeah. as a kid, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely written obliquely, but that's also definitely what's happening, right? I mean, I don't think yeah, I'm going to get to that right. Yeah, it's not very he's... premeditated. It is sort of just his pain leading him into these desperate actions that he's not necessarily planning to kill him, but he's hoping will Right. end up killing him. Mm-hmm. He keeps saying, I, I wanted to hit something. I, I could hit it and wake myself up. I want to wake myself up. And it just, it hurt. I mean, and I think in part because I know friends who attempted suicide at this age, and I can remember that pain that they were trying to get out in really awful ways that I think this book, again, it's dealing with these issues that are so hard and yet so understandable for kids of a middle school and high school, middle school age, being able to say, I know people who are screaming out in pain and just want a way out, they want to wake up, and to see that reflected in this strong kid who's turned into a hawk and can't find his way out. It's so moving, and I really hope that it was helpful for kids. And even without the extreme of the suicide attempts, just the shame that he feels in his body, mm-hmm. which is a big part of the motivating factor for that, is something I imagine almost all adolescent kids can feel because all of a sudden your body wants things, is doing things, is pushing you in ways that don't feel like they're organic to you. They feel like you're suddenly becoming this different person and you are often deeply ashamed of it. Even though it's just, it's like a physical thing that is happening in your body, there is nothing wrong with it. But yeah, there's just a shame associated with it. It feels wrong and hard, and, and Tobias deals with it better than anyone I know who is 13 years old. Right. It's still hard for him. And I think the other great thing about Tobias is that he, while he's dealing with that, that's not all he's dealing with, mm-hmm. right? He's mm-hmm. still, he's got a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He's like cracking jokes. He's also like very inspiring. I love the way he describes Elfangor as lonely, defeated, yet courageous, Ooh, right? Yeah. I think he's he's maybe... You know, he he's he's like made himself a, a hero for him to live up to, right? And he, but he, so he he's dealing with all these things, but he's not defined by them. And I think that's actually one of the functions of the war against the Yerks. Mm-hmm. Like, here's a kid who's dealing with something that's an exaggerated version of what many kids have to deal with, mm-hmm. and he also is being a hero for humanity and has this like urgency and purpose and this very important quest goal like cause that is validating him in a way that like most kids don't get that kind of validation it's not like oh you aren't sure who you are and also you're saving the world like that saving the world piece really affirms the positive side of like his quandary about who he is in a way that most kids don't get to see in their own lives so it's very satisfying to have that yeah he saves his friends yeah (laughs) he he destroys a spaceship the size of Delaware. That's yeah, pretty or impressive. Even Idaho. He doesn't mean to save his friends, though. I mean, it's good that it worked out that way. It's a little bit by accident, <laughs> I suppose, but still, still good. Yeah, how did the Yerks not notice humans falling from their ship? The, like, the OPSEC in this uh, book is terrible. <laughs> the operational security oh. of all of the things on both sides. It doesn't make any sense. It's not good. I feel like there's a version of the Animorphs where, like, both the Animorphs and Visser 3 are a lot better about, you know, (laughs) keeping tabs on each other. But they're both learning. Like, the Yerks figure out during the course of this operation, like, oh, crap, red-tailed hawk's bad. Like, kill the red-tailed hawks that you see. But they don't know that at the beginning. They start to become wary of animals, but they aren't really paranoid to the extent that... Because they know that there are these so-called Andalite bandits around, and... Visitor 3 actually does suspect Rachel of being one when she's in the cat form at Chapman's house. But I think they haven't really connected that to the big picture. Like, oh, anytime we do anything, we need to be careful of the animals. And how many many elephant incidents can there be? (laughs) Rachel shouts out Tobias randomly in front of hundreds of people in the mall, right? Oh, crap. There are a lot of things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... There is a sort of sense of impracticality where they are in the woods. There are a lot of animals in the woods, That's including true. more than one wolf pack, somewhat surprisingly. So, so there would be it would be impossible for them to go in and flush out every animal. That's true. Every day, like that would be ridiculous, right? Uh, including the fish. Yeah. How, how would you, you even do that? Yeah. I do also have a question about the uh, setting for this book. Mm-hmm. I know we don't know where they live, and they can't tell us. However, this is somehow a place that has a beach, 
And then there's a, a wood and a mountain and a lake. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. There are some mountains that are near the ocean. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very diverse animal life in this area that <laughs> I feel is perhaps somewhat not what one would expect. Is it? Like, what would you not expect? The mountains and the red-tailed hawks, those are not near shores. Mountains aren't near shores? Or no, red-tailed no, hawks, red-tailed hawks live in, in forests and, mm-hmm, and in, mm-hmm. in mountains. And I don't know too many places where the, the forest runs close enough to the ocean, that someone who lived on the ocean would be able to rescue a red-tailed hawk from the mountains and the woods. Mm. I do not know everything about <laughs> geography. Maybe they live in a place in... So, like, do you have a hunch about where they are? Well, I originally thought it was California, because they had beach is. parties. Yeah. Okay. I think that... I think it is, but I don't really have a There are probably some places in Northern California where there are mountains that are very close to the yeah. to the western coast of the United States. I just don't know where they are, <laughs> and I'm just very skeptical of this whole thing. I'm particularly skeptical because I know what's ha- what the next book cover is, <laughs> and I, again, have some questions. All right. I don't know yeah. if we're ready for the next book cover. No, I don't think okay. so. Okay. I was going to say, I do know where it is, but I guess, do you, do you care about the spoiler? No, where is it? It's not a very big spoiler. Okay. It's yeah, Jenny already said it. Confirmed. It's California. That was a good guess. Okay. There's a lot of California. I don't know where in California. I don't know if we ever learned that. But I'm still skeptical of this whole thing. I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, but we learned true. that they're in California. I think, okay. I don't know that we ever really encounter a winter. Like, I don't remember any books taking place in the winter, and I think that that it's because they're far enough south. Well, I mean, the Andalites will be here in a year, right? So maybe there is no winter. <laughs> Every year has a winter, Ted. Um, can we address one more question that I have yeah. that was raised by this At book? Least, sure. As we have discussed, I uh, often have questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some morphing questions. Yeah, go for it. Uh, one is the two-hour time limit seems more nebulous than I had thought. Does it? Think, or was the watch just fast? I think that was a case of the car clock just not being right. But even if the even if the car clock was fast, mm-hmm. they had much more difficulty transitioning again than if there were a firm cutoff. You're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you can never change back. Mm, and yeah. they had this this sort of couple minute, five minute window where in fact it was more difficult for them to change back. So is this a sort of Two hours is fine, but when you get close to the end of two hours, it's going to start being a lot more difficult because I'm going to need them to start planning for that (laughs) in a way that they have not yet. I think it's more like if you're right up against the boundary, it's difficult. Like, they were almost too far. Like, if they had waited 30 more seconds, they couldn't have done it. It's more of a gray area that I'm comfortable with. I think it is an uncomfortable (laughs) gray area. Not comfortable with gray areas. Yeah, but which which adds to the tension, right? But I also think it's this biotechnology, right? So maybe you could imagine their DNA is kind of like fluid, right, in some way, and then like after two hours, they, it starts some reaction yeah. is catalyzed, and the, it, it becomes much harder for their bodies to do whatever their bodies can do. I want to say out loud that I'm rolling my eyes because DNA is fluid apparently, and this is all <laughs> just very silly. I also did have the thought, to be fair that possibly it was because they were panicking. Yeah, and you have I was going to be say, yeah. much calmer in order to morph back, and maybe they were just panicking and couldn't remember being human. Because right, Cassie had been in morph longer than any of them and had the easiest time getting out, and I think that's because it's just easier for her to access that, and she just was more confident going into it, and the rest of them were like, oh, no, we're out of time. Ah, human hands on wolf arms. But I also I appreciate that there isn't really an answer, right? There are a lot of, like, competing explanations. Tobias doesn't really know for sure if the timer has run out. Yes. Here's my other um, morphing question. Cassie is the first to morph into a fish. Mm-hmm. And Jake says to her, if you feel like you're suffering, uh, suffocating, sorry, you have to back out of the morph. Are you listening to me? You have to back out if it gets bad. You can't pass out halfway into a morph. Why not? What happens if they pass out halfway into a morph? Is she stuck halfway between the two things? Well, Well, only if she passed out for two hours, I guess. But could they get stuck in the half fish, half human? Like they almost got stuck in the half fish, half human? That scene kind of seemed to be suggesting. At least they were worried about it. This is terrifying. It's a really scary power. Power slash curse, as Tobias points out. Or Cassie could have those bird wings forever and never be able to morph again. It'd be pretty cool, right? No. I don't know if cool is. It would be cool. It would be really difficult and inconvenient. Very not cool. She could not fly. Actually, speaking of bird wings, Gray, in your version, does Marco morph 
a bald eagle at the end? Because he never did that before, or he oh, never does no, that I again. I thought it was Rachel was the bald eagle. Yeah, Marco oh, was has that just an a mistake? I didn't even, I yeah, didn't it's a mistake that. in the original that I remember noticing at the time. I'm like, Marco I do want to know if they eagle. updated the mall stores for the new version because when was there a litany of mall stores there, when Tobias is going through the mall? I think we should compare between stores. the original and okay, Gray's. Did you reprint. write them down or should I? I didn't write it down. It just occurred to me when you you mentioned the difference in books. Oh yeah. Nine West, Radio Shack, B. Dalton, Benetton. A world I knew. A world where I belonged. They changed one. B. Dalton went to Barnes & Noble. Oh. What's huh. a B. Dalton? It's a bookstore. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's, I, I'm That's really less of a change. I'm really surprised they bothered. Yeah, me too. But also that, I, I am curious now what other things they might have edited. Can you look up the thing where Marco... Is it because the in my mm-hmm. version it says before Marco and Rachel had both morphed a bald eagle and even reading this like twenty years ago I was like no that is wrong uh, I've read all these books many times and I know that is not true. Uh, Cassie morphs into an osprey. Marco had previously morphed an osprey as well, and Rachel a bald eagle. They fixed it. Jake had morphed a peregrine falcon. That's good. They did fix it. I feel affirmed in my error catching. I have been keeping track still of new aliens and sci-fi references. Star Trek was said in this one. Marco says it's not like Star Trek where they can make their own water and oxygen on the ship. They have to get it from He knows a lot about Star Trek. He knows a lot about Star Trek. And he says it out loud, which I was surprised by. Um, I think he's, like, too cool to be worried about being a nerd. All the girls think he's cute, Tobias guesses. (laughs) He doesn't know for sure. Maybe he's cute. Because Tobias doesn't think he's cute, right? No, definitely definitely not. not. With his long hair and his brown eyes. They think he's cute because he has, like, long, dark hair and brown eyes. I guess. Apparently that makes people cute. I can't talk. If only he wasn't short. (laughs) Exactly. I did love, I feel like the first time I read this book, when Tobias flies into the mall and someone holds the door open for him, and it's like a guy, dark hair, short. I don't think I registered that it was Marco, because it was a very tense scene. Did you miss it, Gray? It was Marco? I missed that, too. I never never noticed that. Like, even this time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's definitely Marco who holds the door for him. dark hair, short, step to the door, he opened it. (gasps) It's definitely Marco. Marco. I I don't love that Rachel was like, definitely do not come see me do this thing, and he goes and sees her do the gymnastics exhibition. I am not at all surprised that he made that decision, though. No, that sounds like him. Yeah. I'm not totally comfortable with Marco's character. I feel like there's a little bit of, he does all these annoying things on the surface, and sometimes he's a jerk, but deep down, this is the kind of person he is. And I think that there is a problem in our society in general with characterizing particularly men as like, they do all these bad things, but that's not who they really are. Which like, who you are is defined in large part by what you do. Right. The thing, Not to muddy Tobias's question about what makes you human. The thing that said that to me was he was like, oh man, you know, it used to be that all a girl could do was call you names. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now it's, she can stomp you as an elephant. It's, uh, it's pretty bad. Maybe you deserve it. It's like, well, don't do things that will make girls want to stomp you if they had an elephant morph. Just advice for life. Yeah, even if they don't have the elephant morph, right. you still shouldn't do the things. Right. Imagine they do. And then don't say that thing. Or do that. New rule for teenage boys. <laughs> Imagine all girls can turn into elephants. We're here to help. So one scene I wanted to talk about that we mentioned a little bit but didn't go into detail. The scene where he, I think maybe it's the first time he visits Rachel uh, and he gets to look at himself in the mirror. There are a lot of really nice moments in this. Uh, also, I love the idea when he shows up for the first time, Rachel's like, oh, yeah, come in, come in. And she, like, makes sure to, like, lock the bedroom door, right? It's like, oh, like, you know, teenagers, I've got the boy here, but he's a bird, you know? Well, and she Don't had- worry, Mom. I'm imagining sort of like Clarissa explains it all, where, like, there's a knock on the window and she opens it and here's the, you know, the boy next door. Climbing up the ladder, absolutely. Climbing off the birdhouse. Right, she, she deliberately nailed a birdhouse outside for him Aww. to land on when he came over. When did she do that? <laughs> it's so cute, but I'm so confused about the timeline. Yeah, no, it does. This book does seem to imply that, like, I don't know, it's ambiguous how much time has gone by. It's like two to three weeks at the beginning, and then maybe it's unclear how long he's yeah. in his I'm a bird's state. I think it's only a few days. Because they decide to go on Saturday, and he snaps out of it on, like, Friday night or something. Oh, okay, yeah. Because they're still doing it's it less than a week. Time. Yeah. So not enough time for this relationship to have developed to the strength that it has right so i love the i think this is a recurring thing with tobias but i love how he 
he narrates his own experience of this conversation with Rachel where they're really connecting emotionally, but he can't emote with his face, mm. right? So like, you, yeah. this this is the first time in the book he's describing all the other animals, what they look like. He's talking about being a bird, but he has this like seeing himself in the mirror moment where he's mm. like, this is what a red-tailed hawk looks like. I'm going to fill you in. You know, like it's like a little hunched over football lineman, right? Mm. Is how he describes it, which is great. And then Rachel is trying to make him feel better and she's really, really worried about him. And he's like, all I wanted to do was make her feel better. I wish I could have smiled, right? Yeah. But he's got this like these fierce eyes and this beak and he just can't do it, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like he's unable to communicate and then it also he's able to be kind of protected by his face because he can't, people can't read his feelings unless he's like talking to them about them. This isn't something that occurred to me while I was reading it, but the I'm looking in a mirror and describing what I look like is like a sort of a cliche thing in young adult literature mm-hmm. that people mm-hmm. make fun of as like a way to start the book so that the reader knows what the main character looks like. It's like, I looked in the mirror at my blood ponytail and like, I thought I was too pale. And <laughs> I thought it was, it was kind of, I don't think it was an intentional inversion, but that this description comes like halfway through the book and is part of, it is, it's a description of how he doesn't look like who he is. Right. How mm-hmm. he's trapped. The other thing that I like about the way his hawkness plays into his characterization is that hawks have really good vision, and so that allows him to pick up on body language a lot better. Ah. So he's able to read everything in Rachel's face when she's trying to be comforting, and she's saying, like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. And she's like, I could tell she was lying, right? And all the times he's picking up, right, tears in her eyes. Mm -hmm. And even the other kind of group dynamics about Mm -hmm. when, like, we were saying before how Jake is trying to kind of like lead from behind and all those little things. Well, hawks are famously good at body language, so makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think you're lying. <laughs> yes, I am. That's a good point. I did think it was funny that he had the comment like, humans like would say all birds look the same. And I feel like probably if birds can tell each other apart, it's because they would have a lot of experience distinguishing among bird faces. I don't know. I was like, really, does, like is the bird brain particularly good at distinguishing and between different how birds? How is Tobias such a bird expert, right? <laughs> He's so confident about telling us, the readers, facts about birds. But where's the part, like, has he always been like a bird nerd? Or is he just, he has the instincts and now he's just kind of like leaning into it? Like, well, this is what I feel all birds do, so I'm just going to tell you, like, I know what birds do. Seems very confident. Cat, I don't, it I, might be unrealistic. Rachel did the same with the cats a little bit. Which, okay, is more realistic because if you've met one cat, you've met them all. But with the birds, it does seem a little more surprising. I will say, the one group of people who can unerringly tell what birds are going to do are the bird watchers in this mountain (laughs) (laughs) who make it impossible for them to, as a group, fly to the mountain, which would make their lives easier. The mountains are very wide. They could just fly a large distance apart. Go in shifts. Yeah. Two ospreys. Fine. They just wanted Ten them to turn later, into wolves. I know that's that's actually what it was. <laughs> yeah, right. I just needed a I new. Mean, wolf morphs are great. I appreciated when they first turn into the wolves. Tobias says, "I was jealous." I mean, okay, if you ever have to be stuck as an animal, I think being a hawk is the coolest choice of all. But still, I was jealous. My friends were really enjoying being wolves. I guess it was a strange experience for them. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out, Tobias. Yes, none of this is normal, buddy. <laughs> I liked how that highlighted how it's not just that he doesn't get to be human anymore, and it's not just that he doesn't get to participate in the fight in the same ways, it's also that he doesn't get to do this cool thing of turning into all these different animals, and he loved it. Like, Mm -hmm. he loved turning into the bird, right? and now he doesn't get to do it anymore. That's a good point. But I did also like how his thing about how if you're going to turn into any animal or, like, get stuck as any animal... A red-tailed hawk is a really great one. And yeah. he's, like, flying up the building and, like, seeing this man in an office. And you're like, I bet that man is jealous of me. Like, that all felt really genuine. Mm-hmm. Like, he was ignoring the part of him that was really upset about this transformation. But it felt like the positive things, he wasn't, like, putting them on or faking them. Yeah, totally. So Gray has said that if she could pick an animal when she was 13, she probably picked a dolphin, even though it would maybe not be the most practical choice. Ted, what would your choice have been? Oh, gosh. If I could only pick one or, like, what would I do first? You could, if you could only pick one. Oh, man. Um, come back to me. What would you pick? <laughs> okay, I think I would have picked a bird of prey. Mm-hmm. I really have always wanted to be able to fly, and I think I wouldn't have been able to pass that up. Sorry, that was a short answer. You still have, you know, you have to figure out yours. Yeah, it's tough. I'm, like, surprised that I don't have sort of strong feelings about this from when I read the books. What would you do I, now? 
I think that having read the Animorphs books, I'm most drawn to the being a bird experience. Mm. It's, I also hard. Like, it's a hard one I to like the down. way the being a dolphin experience is described. Yeah, the dolphin um, thing that's, is great. That's another, that's another winning, uh, winning morph. Um, I sort of feel like I would have done exactly what Jake did, though, and picked my dog mm, Yeah. as a kid. That's, like, the best answer I can come up with. So that's not what I would pick. That's not what I would pick now. I, w- I mean, it's a great decision at 13 because you're happy all the time, apparently. Right. Yeah. And you could just live in your house with your dog. Like, I feel like kids often envy the lives of pets because pets don't have to go to school. Pets don't have homework. I'm in my 30s. I still envy the life of my pets. (laughs) That's fair. Here's a curveball, though. Okay. What about a different person? If you could morph a different person? That just feels really invasive. Why? I just sort of have an instinctive, like, I feel like the way that we relate to our own bodies is obviously very, like, you know, personal. Like, you know, you clean yourself in the shower and, like... I would not do that to one of my friends because that would be too intrusive. But would it be different if they weren't in that body and I had, you know, I was in their body? Would that be okay? I don't know. It kind of squicks me out. I have often wanted the ability to, by touching somebody, feel what they're feeling or have them feel what I am feeling. You want to be an empath. Yes, but more, not just emotions, also physically. Oh. Because I would very much occasionally like to make my husband have cramps, for example, (laughs) or or like have a doctor really feel what I'm saying when I'm trying to describe symptoms that are hard to describe. That would be really useful. Yeah. And so I've I've often thought that that would be a power I would really like to have is come here and hold my hand and I will, and that will explain to you what this migraine feels like, even though my words are unable to describe it. And I feel like to some extent, if I could take somebody's body and also feel how they experience that body and have it not be like having their memory and their thoughts, but just their body and the mm-hmm. way that their body mm-hmm. interacts with the world, I think that would actually be kind of fun. Yeah, I think what I was going to say is the most, the coolest experience would probably be being some kind of awesome animal, but the most impactful experience or the one that I could learn the most from would probably be being a woman or just mm. being someone who yeah. is someone who's not white, yeah. right? And having yeah. to having to live like that for a while. Sure. I don't think it that sort of gets over the yeah. the stuff that you were talking about, Jenny, right? Because being an individual person is problematic, oh, but being I see a being a, having okay. the experience of being a different person and having to like a type live of like person. that, yeah, right. And to, and to your point, it can be very different to inhabit a different body. Yeah. I would, I mean, if I were doing it for fun, I would definitely choose a professional athlete. Like, I don't know which sport. I haven't really thought that far. That would be just, like, the most satisfying because, of course, you have to do so much work to become a professional athlete, Mm -hmm. and that's not where I've chosen to direct my energies, nor is it my natural tendency. So that would just be super fun. But, yeah, it would probably be in terms of learning things about society, like becoming a person of color or living as a man would be fascinating. (laughs) I think it would give you a really interesting perspective on things. I could be Serena Williams for a day. That'd be awesome. Ooh, then just speaking yeah. of professional athletes. Yeah. Although I had also thought of morphing into somebody who had like disabilities and what their oh, experience yeah. of the world is like. I have a friend who has albinism and a number of other things. So she's she's blind and she's incredibly touched. She's a PhD and she's so smart. But I don't understand how she lives in the world. Like she mm-hmm. is incredibly competent. But like she clearly is, does it, yeah. but in a way that you don't know. Yeah, she's got a PhD from Harvard. She's amazing. Um, yeah. She's gone to Oxford. Like, she's awesome. But she also is blind, and I don't understand how she has done the incredible things she has done. So I would love to be her for a day just to see what is it like to have to be so careful of the sun that you cannot mm. see. It's oh, wow, crazy yeah. cool, and she's amazing, and she's just the best. Yeah. Although if you were her for only a day, you might not figure it out. I would definitely – I would die. It's, very, it's just it, it's important for me to note that in many of these situations I would not do well. So yeah, having this conversation makes me realize that the morphing ability is really the ability of empathy, right? Like they're they learn so much from being these different types of animals, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's all about the different emotions that they experience while they're in the different animal forms, right? And how that that plays into other kinds of things. Yeah, it's also yeah, it's what they can do with the bodies, like for this war, but that's not the most visceral part of it, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk about book four, The Message. Wait, I have one other quiz question for Gray. Now that they've acquired wolf morphs, which anamorph that currently has a wolf morph do you think will uh, grow to to use that one as their calling card, if you had to pick one? Marco. 
But I don't know why I think that, because he's not the alpha male. Uh, <laughs> you think he's going to turn into this female wolf a lot? Yeah, I think he is. Also, presumably he could get the male wolf more, and then... But why would he fantasy. need to? That is an interesting... Now, I think this is maybe the first time I've ever thought about that. You should just acquire... I guess they don't know if there's a limit, right? Mm, That's why they don't don't just acquire every animal. Because why not have different wolves? Test out. No one's morphed the same kind of animal. Like, no one's morphed two different cats to be like, is it really different from animal to animal or not? Right? They sort of are making a lot of assumptions. Yes, as with many of the morphing things, I feel that they are not going about this the most sensible way. Right. It's hard to know what the sensible thing to do is, though, when you're facing an alien invasion. Sure. Like, I liked, actually, Cassie's thing about, like, kind of feel like maybe we've done enough because I was like oh right it's not a given that they're going to keep fighting this war for book after book they did a few things they're normal kids but then of course she immediately undercuts it yeah because it's Cassie and she's going to want to help I know exactly Cassie's my favorite that's the best she's very sweet I'm excited to read her book which I believe is next do you want to look at the cover I really do the message I gotta say again with these covers this one's less bad than some of the other ones but the second picture is very bad goodness gracious i feel like i just never isolated the other pictures like looking at them you really ought to (laughs) it's not good (laughs) it's just a transitional image it's very scary it's worse than the new cover which is in itself quite terrifying no the new new cover is worse (laughs) thanks i'm glad you agree ted all right fine uh okay so animorphs number four is the message the thing on the front cover is sometimes you have to change a little more than your mind which adorable <laughs> and she's clearly turning into a dolphin which is what i would have done if i was the sage um, and then you wouldn't have had to go or swim because you were in the midwest right I w- it would have been very difficult uh okay so the message is going to be a message in a bottle that washes up on shore and then she has to turn into a dolphin to save the people who sent the message who are okay. who oh um, who are uh, aliens. Oh, okay. Yeah. Exactly. What kind of aliens? Um, shoot. <laughs> wow, Ted uh, really wants a detailed okay, prediction here. There are Andalites, and there, it's another Andalite ship, and it landed on, a, on um, what's the name of the, not Azkaban? Alcatraz. <laughs> landed on Alcatraz. <laughs> I'm keeping that. <laughs> and they're trapped uh, out on Alcatraz, and she goes out. Well, I think we should continue to explore these things next time. I can't wait. If you want to find us, we are at Anamorphology.com and at Anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Anamorphs ebooks on our website. All right, guys. Holy shit. You haven't read this book. There's so much in this tiny little paperback. (laughs) Right?